Hi, I'm Lauren Fates, and I've really enjoyed making this show with you, Jamie. And I'm Jamie Sanchez. I got a rainbow in my hands. You weren't gonna do... Okay. Are you ready for the beat? I'm ready for the beat. (laughs) Welcome back to all the bounty hunters in the solar system. We are so proud to present the season one finale of the Bebop Beat. This is the Real Folk Blues Part 2, and our special guest today is all of you. Thank you so much for the audio you sent in. We'll hear some of our favorite clips in a minute. But before then, how are you, Jamie? Are you ready for the end of the show? Uh, yeah. No, I don't know, Lauren. It occurred to me today that I pretty much have to watch every episode three times because I'm also taking screenshots of it. And this was the episode that took up the most amount of my headspace for the entirety of the week. I have pretty much a three-page manifesto in our notes to talk about today, so uh, strap in for that one. It'll be a ride. Like you said before we started recording, I did ask you to do this podcast for a reason, and so if today is the Jamie Loves Spike and Vicious show, I'm ready to hear it. Let's get through it. Honestly, I watched Real Folk Blues Part 2. And I was emotional. I really was. But I think I was more emotional about the end of the podcast. I have been so moved by all of the conversations we've gotten to have with each other, the people we've gotten to meet with all of their interesting areas of expertise, and the stars of Cowboy Bebop and the creators of this great anime sharing their time and their knowledge with us. It was a lot less this time about Spike and more just about this project. So when it comes to the anime, I'm like, yep, that, that's how I remember it. It sure does end that way. So <laughs> I'm glad you have a lot more to say. And I just spiraled into a mad descent (laughs) and dug through a bunch of essays and was reading more fan fiction and just it just keeps pouring out of my head. The thing about The Real Folk Blues Part 2, no matter how many times I finish watching it, something new comes across, something I didn't get before, a bit of detail, a bit of energy from the show that just kind of all pulls it together. And this was way more apparent in this watch through considering we've been going through the entire show with a fine tooth comb. Well, I want to hear all about it. Let's jump right in. The Real Folk Blues Part 2 starts right where we left off. There's no bones about it. We're just right back in the graveyard and Julia has her gun on Spike. It's pretty apparent pretty quickly. She's not actually going to kill him. But I was very taken this time by her line, why did you love me? And also her line, she could have been free. If she had killed Spike back when Vicious first asked her to, as far as she believes anyway, this would all be over. And I guess my first question for you is, is that true? Like, If she had just done the deed, would Vicious suddenly have, like, let her go? I don't think so. I think they're all stuck in this forever, and that's kind of the point. Yeah, I put a big sorry down here when I heard that line again. It occurs to me this time that Julia's either recovering from some kind of Stockholm syndrome, and she's taking Vicious at his word, which, one, you should never do that. And two, like, it's pretty clear how much he wants Spike dead, like, It wouldn't just be at her hands. That's more of a, you're doing my dirty work for me and him trying to manipulate 
someone into doing terrible things, right? This is a show he's putting on for his own enjoyment. So it's a form of torture for her. And then you brought up the other part where she says, why do you love me? As if Spike were the sole cause of everyone's problems, that this was something that he put upon her and that she wasn't at fault at all. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say she's like shirking responsibility or entirely blaming him. I definitely agree that she's not taking ownership either. There's these flashbacks and... There's one that the fandom generally regards as the first time Spike sees Julia, and it's in the pool hall. I think we get the impression that she's actively dating Vicious at this time, and Spike lays eyes on her, and his mouth is just, like, hanging open. He's taken by her beauty. And as a viewer, we're supposed to get this impression, like, gosh, they just couldn't help it. Like, this love story... They're so meant to be that it was out of their control and there was nothing they could do and there's nothing they could do now. And maybe when they met and they were like in their 20s, maybe I would buy that. But again, it's watching Cowboy Bebop in my 30s. I'm like, no, you guys, you're making a lot of choices here that you have autonomy over. You got yourself into this mess. Oh, for sure. Definitely. You know, Spike in the flashback gives Julia a piece of paper and tells her to show up at the graveyard. He won't be in the graves. And this is presumed the time that they'll be running off together into the stars. But she made the active decision not to see him that day. And I was wondering this watch through, why was that? Was it that she didn't want to see Spike and be tempted by killing him and then be able to supposedly live a free life? Or was there some other reason that compelled her to not run away with her lover and just kind of go into hiding? I don't see much of a difference between the two options you just gave. I think it's a little bit of both. I'm not sure Julia knew how to solve this problem. It's just that if she went to the graveyard, she was confident Spike would be dead, and therefore she wouldn't have any more time to think about it. If she didn't go to the graveyard and she didn't kill Spike, then Vicious wouldn't immediately snap and kill him either, and they could sort of still figure this out. Or maybe she was just resigning herself to like, I can't love Spike anymore, I'm just going to be committed to Vicious now, and I'm going to make sure it stops being a problem. This to me feels like Julia sort of kicking the can down the road, right? She doesn't want Spike to die, so she doesn't go to the graveyard. I think maybe she convinces herself that if she just stays with Vicious and convinces herself to stop thinking about Spike, to stop loving him, then everyone can just live. But Vicious's bloodthirst isn't appeased and she doesn't stop loving Spike. So she goes to the graveyard anyway, just later. You bring up an interesting point that I hadn't considered before in that it sounds like Julia doesn't have as much faith in Spike as Spike does in his own abilities that there's some kind of hesitance that that's driving her. Like either Vicious is always going to best Spike and there's just no way they can get out of it. Or Spike has like grand plans that she just doesn't believe in. I believe she says, and go where and do what? And she's just so lost. It involves leaving everything she knows behind. Spike is essentially asking her to give up a life, but it's not like Vicious isn't putting her in that scenario anyway. I totally agree with you. This watch through, I remembered why I'm so fond of Julia and why I sort of imprinted on her. And it's that moment you just said where Spike tells her 
we could live like we're in a dream and be free. And she doesn't say no, necessarily. She just wants details. She asks him, where would we go? What would we do? She knows that they're going to continue to be hunted, and it's not going to be so easy to just disappear. I, I really feel for her. Like All she's asking is, through what mechanism are we going to do this? Let's talk about how to achieve it. And Spike is so cocky. He's so sure that he's just like, no, I have a cool line about how I'm not going to be in the graves. You should just show up, baby. I don't know if I would if I were her either. Like, that's not a plan. That's hilarious. <laughs> because it immediately follows up with the next scene, and uh, we can get into it, where Spike turns into the cold-blooded killer again, right? Every time I watch this episode, I have to deal with a strange cognitive dissonance that Spike is the person we love on the bebop and we can like attach ourselves to and we're rooting for versus Spike the syndicate assassin who's going to fuck everyone's shit up. And how can the two be in love? How is this possible? They all seem kind of out of their minds. Well, bounty hunters, we've had so many awesome guests here on the Bebop Beat, from subject matter experts to the actual creators of Cowboy Bebop. But we really wanted to hear from you, the fans of this anime, whether you just discovered it recently or you grew up with Cowboy Bebop like we did. We don't want to be the only opinions, the only people doing analysis here on this show. So we asked each of you to send us a minute or two of audio telling us how the anime affected your life, who are your favorite characters, why was this meaningful for you, and we really got some great responses. The first ones we would like to share are people who are just in general talking about why Cowboy Bebop is such a masterpiece of anime, why for this long it has been iconic and memorable and something they're going to remember forever. Hey everyone, I'm Erin. Online, I'm better known as my username Sherbet Sushi, she, her, and I'm an illustrator and second year animation student. I'm still fairly new to Cowboy Bebop, only watching it a little over four months ago, but I'd be lying if I didn't say this anime has already really inspired me. What first caught my attention were the iconic and distinctive designs of the main cast, definitely not including my bias towards Spike. And as I watched the show, the universe around them drew me in. You can really see all the love and level of detail poured into every single location, showing us all the different planets and how everything works in the fictitious year of 2071. It's escapism at its finest, and Bebop manages to nail that feeling of retro nostalgia while still feeling new and refreshing simultaneously. The overall atmosphere, style, and world building, and of course, the Bebop crew, is what made me fall in love with this anime and left me wanting more. And don't even get me started on the music. Whenever I have the opportunity to wind down my windows on the highway and blast Call Me Call Me, I definitely do. Thank you so much, Lauren and Jamie, for hosting this podcast. It's been a blast to listen to. See you, Space Cowgirls. Someday, somewhere. Hey there, Bebop Beat. How y'all doing? 
This is Jesse, huge Bebop fan first. Let me say thank you for allowing us some space to share our feelings on the show. I think my favorite thing about this series is that it's a great gateway for people into the medium of anime. The adult themes mixed with the striking visuals really demonstrate how animation can be just as, if not more impressive than live action, and I've just finished initiating two first-timers myself. Can't wait to catch up on the pod. Looking forward to season two, which is not something us Bebop fans get to say often. Last thing, if you could only show someone one episode ever, which episode would it be? See you, Space Cow folk. Thank you so much for this question, Jesse. For our listeners at home, Jesse is one of the hosts of Sudden But Inevitable Rebop. This podcast was formerly known as Sudden But Inevitable Rewatch. They went through Firefly episode by episode, and now they're doing Cowboy Bebop. So if you need another Cowboy Bebop podcast fix, they're your people. Anyway, my answer to this question is Asteroid Blues. I am shocked, honestly, that I picked this one because it's missing Faye, it's missing Ed, but I really think it stands alone as sort of its own mini-movie. We establish two of our main characters, the bounty-hunting dynamic, the universe we're living in, the ship— And we not only get to see a tragic and dramatic story of our two bounties, Asimov and Katerina, but longtime viewers know that their story is actually a metaphor for the larger Spike and Julia story. So if you just watch Asteroid Blues, you actually do get a taste of the greater arc of Cowboy Bebop. I'm glad that Jesse asked this question because my first anime experience was a marathon that included Akira, Princess Mononoke, and whatever happened to be airing on Adult Swim that night. We tuned into Cowboy Bebop episode 11, Toys in the Attic, and it was such a great first introduction to the show. I'm convinced that if viewers don't appreciate this episode, they just won't enjoy the rest of the show as it is. We get to see the Bebop in its entirety. We get to really live with them as roommates in a way. And every single character is so much themselves this episode. Ed is just goofy and strange, Faye's super dramatic, Jet's getting really worried and moody, and then like Spike, you know, our badass, he's such a dumbass for leaving a thing in the fridge. So if you can't enjoy the levity and the horror that's all mixed together, I really don't think you'd enjoy Cowboy Bebop at all. A couple of things happen in quick succession, and they are decisions that Spike makes, but they're also decisions other people make that I am just kind of shocked by. I'm really shocked that Shin goes back to Vicious. I just imagined Vicious was going to kill him, so that scene surprised me. And I was very shocked, like you said, that Spike has to like pull over and see Annie and do this whole goodbye scene where she's bleeding out. Do you think Spike ever actually intended on running away? I was watching this, and I can't tell when that switch flips. I was really feeling for Julia again when she was like, you wouldn't need that many weapons if we were running away together. Do you think he always intended on making a last stand there, and he kind of almost lured Julia to that place to be their stronghold? Or do you think there was a moment maybe when talking to Annie, that he was like, 
oh crap, Julia's right, we don't have a plan, and then decides to buckle down. So this is where I become uh, essentially conspiracy theory, always sunny meme. There's some fine detail in this episode if you pay attention to it um, or if you kind of just let it stew a bit that a lot of the action, the shooting that's happening are with the syndicate members who are wearing black suits with red lapels. And there's a really good essay on the Bebop Attic about who's shooting at who, essentially who's driving the action. When did all of this start? And so if we circle back to Real Folk Blues Part 1, we have the red lapel team shooting up the loser bar. And I believe we're told by the van that they're just kind of cleaning up everything and everyone that was related to Vicious. There's some argument that Vicious is actually the one kind of moving things along because he, he's ready to surface Spike. He's trying to chase him out and come confront him. But I do see this kind of momentum with the van really kicking everything off. They want to stamp Vicious out as a problem once and for all. And the reason I bring this up is because this is the first time the Bebop has ever been in big peril, right? Jet is shot in his leg. So this episode, he's walking around and, and the Bebop is grounded. So they can't actually go anywhere. There's nowhere to run. So there, there's this big reckoning at Spike's doorstep. He's being clearly baited out to go chase Vicious. And if it's not for that, it's the van, the old guard, trying to stamp out everything that is or was around Vicious altogether. So this is a clear reckoning for things to come. I'm just very shaken by the prospect that maybe Spike never intended to run away with Julia. Maybe she showed up to the graveyard after he had already made that decision. And so when he pulls the car over, he already knows and it just takes time for her to catch up. Because I I want the end of this to be a love story, but it goes south so quickly. This was the most affecting watch through of this I've ever had, where it was just clear that they were never close to getting away. I feel like a younger me was like, oh, if they just if they hadn't just pulled over, but the car exploded. There were <laughs> if they kept driving, they would have blown up. The order of events that unravel in this episode are very curious because sometimes you wonder, is it the van who's getting the drop on Annie? So that's why her place is all messed up. And then later on, Vicious's crew gets there, which is why they encounter Spike and Julia. There's also the question if Julia's car is already rigged with explosives or if the team that shows up just blows it up because they know what her car looks like. There's a lot of ambiguity here. And I can't say definitively one way or another how these events shake out, which is why fan fiction is so much fun. There's lots of different interpretations as to what happens, who the action is related to, what motivations are there, how does this resolve. And for the sake of a show like this, when we're talking about homages to film noir, westerns, and mafia films, I think it's doing a lot in the 20 minutes it's given. It's got a lot of impact. It's raising the stakes very high. So I'm not necessarily bothered as to why Julia's car blew up or why Annie was shot and how come the same people are at the same scene again just moments later. It all still serves to build that anxiety and that tension. The stakes are high. People are dying. One scene that I think is beautifully timed, and I think it's very artful that they managed to fit it in at all, is the jet and Faye scene that happens right here. 
Faye, for a moment, is kind of up to the old banter, like, well, gosh, it sure is great that Spike's gone. He was just a load of trouble, wasn't he, Jet? And we're better off. And Jet's just over it to the point where I was pretty disturbed this watch through. He just grabs her and pulls her by the collar. That's not cool. Not a cool thing for Jet to do. It's very rare that we get reminded how much bigger Jet is than Faye or than the rest of the crew because he's such a gentle guy most of the time that that really startled me. This is the moment when we hear Faye describe Julia. I always noodle on this quote so much. Faye says Julia is ordinary or depending on the sub you're watching, perhaps normal. But either way, the type of ordinary that you can't leave alone, like an angel from the underworld or a devil from heaven. The translation is a little weird, like I said, depending on the version that you have. But Faye sees Julia as this contradiction, good, evil, beautiful, plain, that it's so clear why everyone would be drawn to Julia. I often ask myself, okay, who is the narrator of the anime Cowboy Bebop? Like, are we actually seeing this story through omniscient eyes? Or are we seeing this story through, like, Spike's lens, for example? Is Julia objectively gorgeous or subjectively gorgeous? Does she have this magnetic energy? Are people just falling over themselves for her all over the place? Or does this just happen to Spike? And so we view Julia that way because of him. What do you think, Jamie? Because my view on this has changed over time. I have always and likely will always view Julia as a storytelling device. Unfortunately, the show doesn't give us enough about her or bother to develop her character in any meaningful way to make her compelling to me as a viewer. However, when we start asking questions like, is she worthy of Spike's love and how lovable is she meant to appear to us as viewers? I think those things are definitively yes. I can say subjectively no, but it's true that the show is trying to make the argument that Spike's time is worth it. His energy's worth it. All of these sacrifices everyone is making is worth it to see this couple together. I agree with that interpretation now, too. And to be clear, also just as a narrative device. This is what has changed over time for me. I really liked this sort of edgy theory of mine that Julia actually is kind of plain and she is just some woman. But to Spike, she's everything. And therefore, we have to go on this ride that no other man would go through. But I do actually think the intent of Cowboy Bebop is to make her overall, to everyone, irresistible. Vicious still clearly wants to be connected to her in some way, even if that's just owning and manipulating her. Spike has never let her go. But what changed my mind this time was two things. One, the way her hair is drawn In this episode, in the graveyard, no matter what, like, it doesn't matter how dark or dingy the scene is, her hair is animated so shiny, so golden. They're clearly just like, look at this goddess woman. She's stunning. She's like nothing else around her. And I think visually that's what they're trying to say. But also the fact that Faye 
says, let's partner up. She just meets this woman for the first time and decides she's trustworthy and skilled enough that she could kind of go into business with her. Yeah, I think Julia narratively is meant to be just completely irresistible. And that's going to be an interesting thing for Netflix to play with because it's our understanding that she's going to be in a bunch more episodes. And I think that kind of magnetism is going to be really hard to sustain in a character that we get to see so much more of. That mystique, in my opinion, only holds up because we barely ever see Julia. I actually agree with all of those points. I think two things of this now, like we see her mostly through spike colored lenses and we really wish for his happiness. We want these things to come true, even though she's so in a way hateable. She's nothing special to us because we don't get to explore her character. And in fact, she ghosts Spike instead of following him to begin with, kind of creating the entire problem of the show. So if Julia's involvement is more detailed in the Netflix show, I'd like to see why she's even involved with syndicate members to begin with. I remember when we were discussing Ballad of Fallen Angels, we cut part of our audio because I was speculating something about Julia's character that could potentially involve her in the syndicate, such as maybe she's a sex worker or maybe she's a spy. And that's an opportunity I would like to see Netflix take. I want to hear definitively that she is worth all the time and effort and tears and anger and anguish that we experience. Gren remembers her smile. Annie's really excited to see her again. Julia, for whatever reason, has set a positive impression for a lot of the characters that we get to meet along the way. I don't like using this like worthiness language necessarily because I think it's a fine plot line if we're just experiencing some irrational emotions. Spike loves her and he he loves her to an irrational level. Like that would be fine to me. It doesn't have to necessarily be justified. But I would like to know what is her job, just like you said, what is her role? How did she end up here? And I do think that actress is going to have a very big job to somehow be this person that all of these folks remember as so positive, who does, yeah, pull some shit like ghosting the love of her life and kind of putting everyone into a lot of danger. I would never say what happens in this episode is her fault. That would be victim blaming. And the real problem is vicious. But she she sure got wrapped up with some bad people, didn't she? I'll leave it oh, there. Oh, yeah. Mistakes all around. So I did want to go back to the Annie portion of things before we see Jet and Faye. Julia does two things in that scene. She takes her coat off and leaves it on Annie. It has her passport in it, but this doesn't occur to her. She doesn't need it if they're not running. So she wants to ensure that Annie is at least covered um, while she's laying there. And the other thing is, she says that she will be with Spike until the end. And this seems like a character shift for her, where she's suddenly confident in Spike's capabilities and his plan to get out, which makes me wonder why now. But also the end is approximately two minutes later. And that's the end of our Julia. That's it. No, I took that entirely the opposite way. I thought she was accepting that they're going to die here. She, She didn't accept, in my opinion, that Spike has a plan and we're getting out of here. She's like, 
this is it. This is our last stand, but I'll do it with you. I'm, I'm here until it's over. So you believe that when Spike shows up to Julia in the graveyard, he knows that this is his his death. I am not positive about the moment in the graveyard. I am positive at Annie's when he starts loading guns and she said, you wouldn't need all those if we were running away. They both know their toast at latest that point. Huh. That's an interesting interpretation because I have always watched this very optimistically. I think Spike really does want to put an end to Vicious, but I think he has the confidence to do so now. I want to put a pin in that because he still does try to end Vicious, even when for obvious reasons, he's not going to get as happily ever after. So Lauren, I think I know what my favorite scene in the entirety of Cowboy Bebop is. Ooh. The moment when Spike realizes that Annie's place is surrounded and he turns to her corpse and says, I'm sorry, I'm going to make a bit of a scene. It gets me every time. Like, it really makes me wonder what kind of underling or friend or leader he could have been if he stayed with the syndicate because it seems like Mao wanted to become more of a pacifist and Spike really had that potential to shift the syndicate that way. But not only that, it's maybe this is something that he never fully expressed before his time on the Bebop, right? The, his journey with Faye and Jet and Ed really changed him. I don't think he's ever been this kind of like, hey, I'm sorry to someone who's dead. You know, he's he's always been very respectful, but I don't think he's been remorseful or apologetic in any meaningful way. I could see that. I'm not confident enough to, like, articulate the nature of the change and how he's different now, but he definitely is, and we'll see it again later with Faye. He starts sharing sentiments and talking in a way that nobody's familiar with. So he... He did a flip. I'm not sure, though, if as an audience member, we're supposed to be like pining for a future in which he's a syndicate leader. I think because of Mal, we, the viewer, are able to picture like a friendlier, cuddlier syndicate that's more about business and upholding norms than just violence and killing. But I don't think Cowboy Bebop ever says that would be a good idea or a good outcome. I think it still brands Spike's syndicate involvement as like a tragic flaw or a problem. Oh, for sure. I don't think Bebop as a show is going to state that, yes, they're they're the good guys now. It's hard to watch this show and not feel sympathy or empathy for characters like Spike and Annie and Shin. There's another line that Annie says before she dies in, quote, they've all lost their sense of place in the world, like kites without strings or tails. And that makes me think that Vicious, his main intent was to just sow chaos and discord. Not that he necessarily was interested in becoming the successor and was angry that Spike was chosen over him, but that his true motivation was to upend everybody. Well, yeah, I I just think she is one of those people, and maybe even Spike is, and maybe even Julia is, that believes like, well, we are a syndicate, we are a terrible, huge gang, but if run by the right people, we could do it with honor, you know, we could be like an upstanding organization. And I think from the outside, we just know there's no way, but it's, it's about what would you do if you were given that power? 
Spike, Annie, Julia, they would have a very different reaction to having that power than Vicious. With that power, like you say, Vicious just wants to do big murder. (laughs) As a longtime fan of this show, I know how meaningful and impactful it's been, not just as a story or an anime, but also how it improved someone's life, how it changed the trajectory of their course of their careers or how they live. So now let's listen to a few stories where that actually happened. Hi, Beboppy. This is Rob. My pronouns are they, them. So I love Cowboy Bebop because I love the sense of adventure and I love the characters and the relationships between the characters in the show. I think they're just really well written and developed over the course of the entire run. Cowboy Bebop has affected my life in the sense that it made me realize that there's not a lot of character driven and even really plot driven like space western stories out there. It kind of inspired me to now create my own video game that's inspired by not only Cowboy Bebop but other sci-fi and the real world and my own relationships. And I want to make something that hopefully people who enjoy Cowboy Bebop can see it and play it and enjoy it in their own way. My favorite episode of Cowboy Bebop is Speak Like a Child because I love the emotional climax when the entire crew watches Faye's home videotapes. It's such an emotional moment and gets me every time. And I think it's still important in 2021 because like all great sci-fi, it really kind of gets you to think about beyond your own little world and your own little headspace and really think big about the possibilities of your life. My most controversial Bebop opinion is I think the live action Netflix show is going to be good. I really like the opening title sequence. And I really love the casting. I love John Cho, Daniela Pineda, and Mustafa Shakir as the trio. And I can't wait to see what they do with this live-action reimagining. I definitely think Spike Spiegel is dead. And of course, Ayn is a very good boy. Hi there, my name is Kate. My pronouns are she, her. And I wanted to speak about how Cowboy Bebop animation is absolutely timeless. I think that uh, when I watched it back in high school, I could only grasp as much as I could being a teenager. And when I rewatch it now in my 30s, I can see how actually deep um, this uh, literally masterpiece of style and music and uh, storytelling is. And I think it forever raised the bar for me how the good anime should be. Uh, I think it was literally the second anime I ever watched in my entire life after Samurai Champloo. So I kind of went in reverse there. And the way it affected my life is is quite incredible. Uh, this was one of those factors how I started to fall in love in uh, with Japan as a country, as a culture. And uh, so, yeah, I'm originally from Russia and I now live in Tokyo for six years and I do not plan to go back anytime soon or forever, hopefully. Thank you very much. 
Hi, this is Alex. My pronouns are they, them. Cowboy Bebop was very much part of my intro to anime in the early 2000s, but I didn't really get into it for another 15 years or so. Um, I put myself into a significant amount of debt leaving a bad relationship and moving myself and my dog to a dingy apartment where I was delivering food and walking dogs just to scrape by and build my life back up from nothing. So there I was with my haunted past and a significant amount of debt, eating cup noodles and chain smoking from contract to contract and hoping that it would amount to something. And that is when I really started to appreciate Cowboy Bebop. Um, it gave me hope and it gave me solace and it gave me something to do while I uh, recovered. Fast forward, my current partner of two years initially swiped right based on my spiked Spiegel cosplay photo, so I definitely owe Cowboy Bebop more than I could ever pay back. Cowboy Bebop is and always will be cool, but to me, at its core, it's romantic. It takes the longing and the freedom of the Western and combines it with the possibility and imagination of sci-fi and smushes those together with the class and sex of the detective noir story. And every character, whether it's a main or a bounty, is chasing something or someone. They're all driven by yearning and in some cases literally by hunger. I think as long as people want for anything, Cowboy Bebop is going to mean something to them. And the last thing I'll say is Spike Spiegel is very much alive in our hearts, but his physical body is super dead. So I was very shocked this time by how quick Julia is taken off the board in this episode. I've seen it so many times, and yet I always manage to forget the episode's almost half over. And if we're going to lose Julia, I feel like we expect it to happen in some big way, like Vicious kills her or she sacrifices herself to prevent Spike's death. And instead, like background thug number three just gets to do her in. And as rough as that is to watch, I think it's the perfect way to end that character's story. Not a fan of, you know, fridging. Like, she definitely just dies to advance Spike's story. That's true. But life can just be taken away from you in a moment, and the best laid plans don't always work out. And for all of the speed and cunning and confidence that Spike has, maybe Julia's not the star, like, runner and gunner that he is. Maybe she just wasn't up for this. And ran a random guy, a random guy does it. It's wild. This is where I think Watanabe and Keiko Nobumoto and all of the other people who really set the stage and set the tone for the series, they know what film is like. They know how to push your, your buttons and pull all the strings because it's not about who kills her, but it's the fact that she dies and it's the moment she dies and the, the doves or the pigeons flying away and slow motion her falling we're definitely seeing her death from Spike's perspective. This is huge, and it unhinges him like nothing else has unhinged him before. I just want to add kind of a moment of levity here also. I was watching this episode, and the second Julia takes a bullet and those doves start flying into the sky, I was watching this as I always do on my Xbox, and the moment Julia's falling forward, I get this notification on the screen that's like, 
your battery is running low. (laughs) And I wish I wish I could have taken a screen cap of like Julia dying and the screen saying your battery is running low. Because I'm like, yep, her battery is going to be out in like three seconds. And I I laughed. I laughed like an asshole. It was very bad. (laughs) I was going to bring up how the rain is mixing with Spike's tears and how the sound of the rain was just so like emotionally powerful. And here you are with your Xbox notifications. That rain also, man, you can tell it's been a really long time since I've watched this because when she passes away, you're not supposed to hear what they say to each other in this moment. The rain is supposed to drown it out. And I was like, is something wrong with the new Blu-rays? Did that release have like an audio problem? What's going on here? Oh, my God. It's only one of the most like meaningful reveals in the entire show. And I'm like, why didn't I hear her? (laughs) It's been a while. Speaking of it being a while, this story's already been told. This happened in Asteroid Blues. Katerina and Asimov die. Like, here we are finishing the show after 26 episodes with pretty much the exact same scenario. Yes, completely. The beginning of this anime and the end are a mirror. And when you watch Asteroid Blues, I think you're supposed to be filled with this like, well, those were just petty criminals. He was on drugs and she was reluctant. There was no way they were ever getting out. But our guy Spike, and what we learn here is that Spike and Julia are no different. And I really appreciate that. I also really appreciated this watch through the Japanese performance of Spike. Actually, several of the Japanese performances. Steve Bloom is my preferred Spike like 99% of the time. But the way the original track has him, as you say, like unhinged yelling, Julia, it's so much more devastating in the Japanese I found it much more emotionally affecting in the original. And not to jump ahead, but later on when he's talking to Faye on the bebop, that conversation is much more whispered and intimate and emotional too. I really have big ups for the Japanese cast on this one. Just a masterpiece of a work. I'm sorry, I'm partial to English Vicious, so I'll get to that a little later. But I do agree with you, though, Because when I started this watch through, I fully intended for the first time to watch the entire Japanese subtitles through the entire way. And this being my first watch through of it, I'm impressed. I thought I would be so attached to our English voices that this wouldn't be my real Spike. He wouldn't possibly be this person, but it fits him in a different way for sure. But I appreciate it, and I think it gave me more context and appreciation for the show overall. We next get a scene with Jet and Laughing Bull. The fact that Jet seeks this guy out, I think, is pretty amazing on its own. Jet's character, you know, he decided early on he doesn't read horoscopes anymore. He's not really into the misty woo-woo stuff, but in his time of need, he goes and tracks down this mystical character who has been giving us foreshadowing through the entire series. I don't want to deep dive into this scene right now, if that's okay, because it goes into my rant about the very end of the show and what happens there. But to peek ahead into what that's going to be like, 
I just I just think laughable makes it very obvious the direction the direction of the finale. Leave it. I'm leaving it there. What do we think the name Running Rock is, Lauren? Why why does Bull call Jet Running Rock? I'm sure somebody out there has done a much more intelligent and thoughtful analysis of this. I think the rock is him being the central stabilizing figure of the bebop and his desire to be a central and stabilizing figure in the lives of others as well, even to his detriment, like in his previous relationships. And I think the running part is potentially him running from the past. We do a lot of re-examining Jet's versions of events in Cowboy Bebop. I'm pretty sure I talked about that an episode or two ago how he's actually kind of an unreliable narrator because he has a way in his head that he really feels like previous events went, why his love left him, why he left the ISSP, and it's not actually true. So as long as he keeps running, he can sort of have the story of his past be whatever he wants, just never let it catch up to him, while also wanting to be that, that stabilizing you know, paternal figure. But it could be something entirely different. It could be that his he's bald and his head looks like a rock. I don't know. Maybe it's not that deep. <laughs> Does that make Spike look like a bird? <laughs> yeah, you know, he's got a beak nose. Totally. <laughs> you need to see my face. It's very sarcastic. I'm glad we got the scene only in that we've brought it full circle, right? We've We've tied up all the loose ends. We're getting a new message from Bull, which had been consulted heavily by Spike in the past. And it's nice to have this character recur once more to kind of assuage our fears or kind of emphasize, yes, what you think is happening is happening. Both the vocal performance and the animation of Jet in this episode are out of this world. He's an extremely emotional character to follow from his anger and frustration with Faye and his desperation seeing Laughing Bull, to the scene we get now where Spike comes back to the bebop for, I guess, a last meal. He really just kind of dines and dashes in the end after being cryptic to both of his friends. And Jet looks so happy for just a couple of minutes. It just makes my heart ache. Jet is so excited to have Spike back and to have Faye there and the family's back together and they get to eat and he's laughing and he's like trying to have a good old time with the boys. Spike just pops that bubble so immediately and just the smile on Jet's face, it just tears me up. Early on, he says his leg is busted, his ship is busted, this guy has brought him nothing but trouble and he's so happy to be rid of him. But we know that's not true. We know that Jet really thinks of Spike either as a younger version of him or some kind of family member. They've clearly grown close over the few years that they've worked together. And and you can see Spike throughout the last few episodes warming up, apologizing to Jet, like being more respectful of his space or his ship in ways that, I mean, were pretty nuanced. But I think he comes back not for a last meal, but to pay his respects to Jet. When Vicious finds out that Julia's dead, he's convinced that Spike has, quote, nowhere to return to now. But Spike proves him wrong by showing up at Jet's door. And they could have easily just, if the Bebop could fly, fly off of Mars and keep running. Jet could have 
in some way convinced him to stay, especially since Spike said there's nothing he can do for a dead woman. All of this leads me to believe that Spike appreciated Jet's companionship so much that he wanted to say a proper goodbye, but also that he, he doesn't want to put Jet in danger anymore. And he's got to go put an end to Vicious or else Vicious will hunt him down to the ends of the, the entire solar system. I really still leave this episode unsure of what is the reality of a situation versus what is actually happening. And I agree with you that the intent of Cowboy Bebop, like the authorial intent, is that Spike is right and there's no getting out of this. He and Vicious are destined to have this battle to the death because if they don't, this conflict is never going to end and anyone Spike ever loves could just be pulled into the fray. And Spike realizes he doesn't want that for the people he's gotten close to. However, these last two episodes are just packed to the brim with people who are trying to tell Spike otherwise. Julia finds him to say, let's run away together. We could just go somewhere. Jet and Faye both really have this feeling about them. Like, finally, things are lined up in such a way that we could get out of here. We're ready to continue our life together, you know, like always. And Spike's the one who doesn't allow it. Faye, in particular, decides she does have somewhere to go back to. It's the bebop. But for her, the bebop is all there is. And if this is her only choice, the only place she could come back to, and she decided to do it, she's going to be here now. How dare Spike almost, like, ruin that? Spike is depriving Faye and Jet of the vision of the future that they've all sort of built. Like, all right, the three of us against the world, we're going to do it. Spike says no. But who is the reliable narrator here? Is Spike right about the situation he's in? I think, yeah, he is. But it really takes agency away from Faye and Jet. This anime does kind of treat them like they don't actually know reality, like they don't know the stakes of the situation they're in. And I find that hard to believe. I would normally agree with that, but we have in other episodes been told by fellow crew members that like, don't interfere. This is their past. They need to make what they they can of it or put it behind them in the way that's most appropriate to them. And I think this episode, both Jet and Faye are meddling because they know it's so dire. I also think there's an aspect of Jet where he realizes that Julia's dead. So the previous reason he let Spike go off is no longer relevant. And now there's no clear, compelling reason for Spike to do anything that he's doing anymore. Faye concludes that he's just throwing his life away. And Spike responds that he's going to find out if he's really alive. I'm always having a difficult time unpacking that line. I'm going to find out if I'm really alive. Dude, you're fucking alive. Like, <laughs> I appreciate the storytelling, the, the buildup, this kind of coolness, everything that the Bebop has really built up towards to make Spike a truly kick-ass character. But as a viewer in my late 30s, I'm still struggling to figure out, like, what does he mean by that? That's kind of a slap in the face for his companions. Yeah, this series of events here was extremely contradictory for me as I was watching. So on one hand, 
Faye calls him out for hypocrisy. She's like, you've always told me not to be stuck in the past, not to worry about it, move forward. As it turns out, you're a huge hypocrite. Like, look what you're doing right now. She and Jet, I think, are the ones who are kind of, quote unquote, in reality. They're they're seeing the situation, in my opinion, for what it is. Like, Julia's dead. We can't believe you're still doing this. We The thing you said you were obsessed with, you can't get it. So what's your deal? Spike takes off and See You Space Cowboy, which is an alternate version of the real folk blues, starts playing. Here's what I mean when I say I was having a very, like, dual experience. On one hand, this music kicks in and I'm literally crying. I forgot about that music cue. I forgot about this, like, romantic love story version of this song. It's so gorgeous. It's beautifully crafted. I'm, I'm like, weeping over how wonderful anime is. But it's also the, like, almost the cringiest part of Spike at this point is, like, no. <laughs> I'm going to put on my trench coat and sit in the shadows and fly to this love song about rainbows to my death at the hands of Katana Man. It, it's so heavy-handedly anime. And I almost feel like Jet and Faye are like begging him, don't go full anime. <laughs> like, just stay with us. Don't do it. Don't go full anime. And Spike's like, I'm doing it. I'm going full anime. <laughs> I mean, that being said, it's probably one of the tamer anime endings we ever get. Like, it's not like people are being resurrected from the dead or like there's some wild alien attack coming from the sky. No, this is just humans on Mars having a real duel with real weapons, no space lasers. But I can see what you mean. Like, it is very heavy-handed. It it borrows a lot of the same recurring shots and themes from Ballad of Fallen Angels, which, again, we know is highly influenced by John Woo. I think at the same time, this entire ending is very bittersweet. It's having so much fun. There's so much energy in all of the action. There's so much tension being built and timing that just, it's perfect. I could never envision or imagine a less anime version of this episode. Yeah, I mean, I'm poking fun because I love it so much. I'm just being very self-aware of the fact that, like, it's 20 years later and I just still like the same stuff. And I was a very different person back then. Angsty teen me is still like, yes, I'm excited. Of course, here in fandom, it's very common to talk about your favorite episode or your favorite characters. We were delighted by your response to not just the main Bebop crew, like, of course, some of you all like Spike a lot, but there's a fan of Vincent in here. There's someone who's really, really stoked about Wild Horses. Let's hear some of our favorite takes on favorite eps and characters. Hey, I'm Grayson, he, him. Cowboy Bebop is one of my all-time favorite shows. And while it's hard for me to like pick a favorite, like I oscillate between a few of them, I gotta say that the ending to Jupiter Jazz uh, really sticks out and really gets to me. You know, with Spike sending Gren back to Titan and Gren saying, if I can't make it back, at least I'll be on my way. Oh, so moving. And then Jet letting Spike back on the ship you know, even though he didn't, he didn't catch Gren, you know, he's got that he's got that pause and he just says, where are you back inside? We're taking off. Mm, awesome. Just very moving. And then old man Bull at the end, and he's talking to the kid and that that reveal that the, the falling star seen at the 
beginning of uh, part one was really Grinch ship this whole time. Yes. Mm, awesome. Love that. And then the space lion track that plays over all these scenes is just so pure and beautiful and just ties the whole thing together like flawlessly. Oh, and then the fight, oh, then the, the, even the, the title card at the very end, you know, do you have a comrade? Mm, perfect. Love it. Can't get enough. Hi, Lauren and Jamie. This is Sean Rose. My pronouns are he, him. I uh, just wanted to give you a little bit of my thoughts about Cowboy Bebop. So, um, yeah, I, I really think that Cowboy Bebop was kind of my first uh, example of it was, I think, the first time I really took anime seriously, uh, which is, I guess, kind of weird because I I grew up with like Toonami uh, and I was really into Dragon Ball Z and I was into Pokemon before that and stuff like that. And uh, I enjoyed it, but I, I kind of really maybe thought of it as something that was like, I guess, more of like a guilty pleasure. Even back then, I didn't take it entirely seriously. I should have, but I didn't. And I remember seeing Cowboy Bebop. I didn't see Cowboy Bebop until uh, college. And I remember seeing it and just, it was kind of the first anime that I really saw where I was just like, wow, this is, you know, gorgeous. And this is so well done. And the music is so good. And um, the, it was the first time I'd re- seen a really great English dub uh, just because I was so used to like the early Dragon Ball English dubs, which were not very good. So seeing such a classy and well done one was was really shocking. Um, and I was also like really into classic rock. So seeing uh, any any anime that had a, 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 a you know, a, an episode that was named after jamming with Edward, which is like a, an obscure Rolling Stones album, uh, was was OK in my book. Um, yeah. And, and probably my favorite episode. I, I don't know if it would say it's my favorite, but uh, uh, Sympathy for the Devil was the first one that really, I think, really caught my attention just uh, from kind of like it's kind of unusual premise and kind of how simple the ending was and. Uh, and kind of, it was kind of haunting and, and unusual. So, um, yeah, Cowboy Bebop, I, it's still great. I've rewatched it a few times. Uh, it really opened up a lot of doors for me. And now I'm, now I'm a big weeb and a big anime fan. And, uh, I really think that Cowboy Bebop is kind of the, uh, the, the real example of that, that, that really kind of kicked the doors open for him. So, uh, keep up the great work on the podcast and, uh, yeah, best of luck with the episode. Thanks again. Hi, I'm Joe Weber. He, him. I can't say that Wild Horses is outright the best episode of the series. I mean, I love the haunting dread I felt throughout Pierre LeFull and the offbeat aliens homage in Toys in the Attic. But seeing the space shuttle Columbia carted out of an old hangar by a tank in this triumphant moment to save the day was just chilling. I can say that Wild Horses hit me the hardest. This episode was made years before the Columbia disaster, and as many problems the space shuttle program had before its eventual end, it was iconic enough that I religiously followed it as a kid. I mean, space shuttles were like my generation's Apollo. Heck, I had a plastic toy space shuttle that I would fly up and down in the back seat of my parents' car as they drove me around. I'm sure many kids did. And here in the Bebopverse, Yeah, it's a forgotten historical relic, but the Columbia is still there. It still exists. It was successful enough to influence spaceflight and retire, and old enough to have just faded away from memory in Duhan's garage. 
how could you not love that? The episode itself offers a great showcase of Spike's good piloting and his stoicism and the theme of being stuck on the past. It's all just great design and writing. The delivery of Spike's whatever happens happens is just icing on the cake. I can say that to me, everything about Wild Horses is perfect, especially the music. Whereas the scene with Faye and they're like really close to one another and they're whispering in each other's faces, I think is one last bit of Faye and Spike shipping food. There's a moment in here where I was like, ah, the Vicious and Spike shippers, their crops are growing. They are thriving because Vicious tells Spike, I've told you before, I am the only one who can destroy you. And that I told you before part is very weird and to me kind of erotic. Like, we talk about this all the time. (laughs) What? (laughs) He also says, as you wish. And I'm just like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's just, there's something so funny about Vicious. I recognize that. He's a caricature. There's, he's meant to be one dimensional. He's insane. You're not supposed to believe someone like this actually exists. But the fact that He has such close ties to Spike, and we believe so readily in Spike and his abilities and his motivations that, of course, Vicious makes sense in this world. Of course, this anime has this potentially uh, drug-crazed psychopath trying to tear up an entire syndicate. Of course, he blew up a bird and he wields a six-foot katana. What, What else would he be doing? And the funnier part about Vicious as a character is that He's not relying on these things. He's using all of the tools in his disposal, including endless NPCs, including this weakening of Spike during their final battle. He's leaning into all of these as gains. He's very strategic. He knows what he's doing. Even when he appears to be taken off his guard, he has a plan B and a plan C. And he just knows that every ounce and fiber of his being should be put towards ending Spike. Spike cannot live anymore. This is his entire life's mission at this point, is to kill what was formerly his brother-in-arms. Yeah, it's really hard to picture them formerly so close. Again, we don't see a lot of that. We're just asked to write in so much based on flashbacks or sort of our own fan fiction. Netflix has a big challenge ahead of it if Vicious is going to be in so many episodes to really convince me that these two characters are basically brothers. They used to have this deep love and something significant and real and terrible enough happened that now they just want to murder each other and in their own different ways are willing to just completely torpedo their own lives in pursuit of that goal. Spike says in Jupiter Jazz Part 1, you don't know what Vicious is. And it's the real folk blues Part 1 and and Part 2 where we get a full understanding of what he's capable of. But you're right. We never learn when Spike learned that Vicious is a total complete psychopath monster. We never learn why they're that close or what brought them together to begin with, aside from just being work colleagues, supposedly. There's so much story ripe for the taking, right? And 
and I'm really kind of excited about Netflix's approach on this because we do know we're getting a backstory novel. Sometime in 2022, the one of the lead writers of the show will be dropping essentially what is the whole syndicate backstory. And of course, it's going to be an interpretation. I don't expect to be getting a one-for-one that fills all of the holes in the anime, but I do expect them to fill in all the holes for the Netflix show. So if we leave that show with more questions than answers, I think I'm going to be so damn angry. (laughs) Well, one of the things that really raises my eyebrow about them releasing a prequel novel and adding so much more Vicious and so much more Julia is that I have to imagine this stuff is going to be shown to us in relatively chronological order then. I only have so many questions about the syndicate and more importantly, care about them so much now that I have watched this entire anime and I've learned to love these characters. That's when I became curious. If we saw their background together first, I'm not sure I'd care as much. Spike in the past as this like ruthless syndicate member on his way to becoming a leader, why would I care about that person? I only care about these questions because I care about who Spike is today. So here we are, like the ending battle, right? It's the big moment that the show has really been working us up over for pretty much the last 20 episodes. And it's beautifully animated. It's ripe with animosity between Spike and Vicious. You really get the sense that these are two forces of nature that are ready to tear everything apart. And we as viewers see that Spike's left eye is pretty much incapacitated. It's covered in blood. And that brings us to a conversation much debated in the fan community about which eye sees the past and which eye sees the present. In Sympathy for the Devil, we can tell that Spike's right eye was surgically replaced by a fully functioning cybernetic eye. But is this eye a camera that stores memories? Why would it see the past? In this episode, we see close-ups of his left eye when he witnesses Julia's death, like he's replaying it in his mind. In the flashbacks, because we see his right eye in those moments. There's a moment when Spike opens both of his eyes, like he's finally woken up from his dream, and Vicious even says so. The two of them duke it out at their full capacities. They've got nothing left holding them back. We presume the syndicate is going to be in ashes after this, and that the victor will go on and resurrect it into this new era. But that's not what happens at all. The two of them actually do end each other. It's like we get a star-crossed lover trope, but between these two bromances, like, And I love it. I can't imagine a more perfect ending. Yeah, I think they both have to die in order for this anime to appropriately end. There are so many storylines that you could continue to tell that I think the fandom would be so excited to hear if Vicious lived or if Spike lived. And we can see a lot of debate about that that I don't necessarily love. Because everyone like longs for that so badly. But by closing both of these stories out, sure, there's probably still going to be a syndicate somewhere, but it's not going to be led by anyone we care about. So we can kind of sleep a little bit easier that there's no more Cowboy Bebop. I mean, what if it's just that? (laughs) The end. Uh, No, (laughs) it's not just that. And I think that's what makes this ending so bittersweet. Everyone who does matter, at least to us, Fanjet, are left 
still in this purgatory. They both woke up from their appropriate dreams or pasts, and now they have to reconcile with Spike's absence. Furthermore, does a dead Spike complete this story? Is Spike killing Vicious worth it in the end? Do we think that, I mean, obviously, given the massive amounts of fanfic out there, that you know, Spike is better served returning to the Bebop and they can go on carrying on in their bounty hunter ways. But no, I mean, Faye isn't going to jump into the hammerhead and go and pull Spike's dead body from the stairs and resurrect him in a hospital. And then he's going to wake up magically with a smoke in his mouth, complaining that he's hungry. And honestly, 90% of the post-canon fanfic I read is that. There's this intense longing for Spike to have more life to live. And it poses a question that I think is very unique to our situation right now. Does John Cho, an actor in his 50s, make a compelling Spike when part of Spike's sad story is that he dies so young? Great question. If the assumption is that John Cho's age is ever going to be a plot point. I keep saying this, and I can't recall if it has stayed in her previous episodes or if we've edited it out, but my bet is still that Spike's age is going to be pretty ambiguous. John Cho looks physically great in this role, and I, I think they might just try to get away with not making it a thing because to say this character literally is decades older than the one you know You're absolutely right. It changes the point. I don't want to steal your thunder because I know kind of what you're getting at, but it would be, I think, very ageist to say, well, this person is pushing 60. They didn't have much going on in the next couple of decades. They've lived a great life. They've had a great run. That would be a crappy ending to the show. So it, it seems like they can't mention how old he is. I agree with you. But I also think having a more mature Spike who's wiser beyond his years and has lived several decades and has all this experience as a skilled assassin and he's just spending three years kicking it because, you know, he doesn't want to face off with his mortal enemy. I'm hard pressed to believe that the motivations of an older Spike would be exactly the same as the motivations of a younger Spike. I could see them putting a bigger time gap in between the events of the flashbacks and the events of Cowboy Bebop, and I think that could still float. Instead of it being like, just a couple of years ago, Julia tried to run away with me, and then it fizzled, and I'm still in love with her, if it became, she chose Vicious, and we all moved on, and it's been much longer than that and somehow this stuff is coming back to haunt me later, I think that could still feel okay. I know the show's going to have to reconcile it because we are going to get a full novel about pre-canon Bebop. The show does nothing to really tell us about like when Vicious went to Titan or why, how Spike had this affair with Julia without Vicious ever knowing, and maybe some other nuanced details the show never got to, like, is Vicious a red-eye-addicted user? Did Spike lose his eye because he also was using red eye? Like there there are elements they can play with that I think that we as viewers of the anime have just been trying to cobble together for decades now. I have plenty of headcanon. I could go on forever about this. Yeah, it's extremely Star Wars in my opinion. You love Cowboy Bebop. 
to a level of detail and scrutiny that I have never taken the time to explore. So when it comes to like, were they red eye users? What happened on Titan? I'm fine never knowing, just like I was fine if Solo, the film, never existed in the Star Wars universe. But it does seem like you're kind of getting your wish. They're expanding this part of the tale for sure in the live action version. The stuff I care about is a lot broader. Questions like what does happen to Faye now? What does happen to Jet now? And I got to say, I don't have a super optimistic view. I don't necessarily think they're doomed or that like ill fate is going to follow them forever. But I have a hard time believing that just Faye and Jet would continue to work together without the glue that is Spike and without the assistance with the work that is Radical Edward. One of my sort of theories as to why this anime ends when it does, in addition to Spike being dead, because he totally is, is that this is the story of the time this crew was together. These episodes, there's so much that happens before them, and there's so much that happens after, but this is the story of the Bebop crew as a foursome. And once that foursome dissolves, the anime ends because that period in time is over. It's great to know there's so much fanfic out there about like the gang hanging out for years to come, but I think the purpose is the tale of four people, and it's never going to be four people again because it can't. Two things we have to mention, have to mention before we go today, are the two lines that we get. The lines, Lauren. We get, you're gonna carry that weight, which is an homage to the Beatles, and bang, that iconic line, his final line when he dies. And fans of the show have latched onto these two things so immensely. Like, they get them tattooed. We see him over and over again in memes. People get stickers for their cars or their motorcycles or their guns. It's clear that Spike's death has left a big impression on many, many Bebop fans and many anime watchers in general. I appreciate you're going to carry that weight, mostly because we're told as viewers that this is going to live with us. Here's the burden you get to live with now. And Lauren, I think that's really why I've grasped on to all these loose ends as tightly as I have. Because I need to figure out a way to reconcile all the sadness that's within me right now. But it becomes a theme, too. Um, One of my favorite purchases was the Japanese 5.1 DVD box set, which is a cake box. And each layer of the cake is a DVD that's contained in a physical piece of media, but represented in cardboard. So uh, we get, say... The beta tape, you open that up and it's it's got like a little flap and there's the DVD in it. And then we've got um, a metal film canister and you open that up, there's another DVD. And on the top of each DVD, there's a cake. And as you go through all of the layers of the DVDs, there's one piece fewer of cake. And if you remove the bottom insert from this box set, it says, you're gonna carry that weight. Because you ate all the goddamn cake. You ate the best damn cake that was ever made. And it's with you forever. It's become a part of you. It's so interesting that you have taken that final line to be about this story and this anime itself. Like, you are changed now. I love that interpretation. It's not where it took me when I first saw it. I thought this was about 
our characters and their suffering and how we can compare our own life stories to theirs. Faye finally remembered her past, but didn't have anyone to go back to. It wasn't a fairy tale. She got dealt kind of a crappy hand even after her story got its resolution. And if she wants to continue to survive, if she wants to continue to live, now she carries the weight of her memories with her. Her parents are gone. All of her friends are either dead or really close to it, certainly not people she can spend time with and have meaningful relationships with. And she can't escape that. If she's going to live, she's going to carry that weight. I think that's very present in, in Jet. All of his mistakes are literally weight that he carries on his body in, in the form of this arm. And he's clearly haunted by his former love and his former comrades and how he still has to live alone with bonsai trees on a ship, even though he, I think if he had his druthers, he'd still be with those people. But unless you are like Spike and you die and your time on this earth ends and your star falls, for as long as you're here, you just have to carry it. It's definitely a dual purpose line. If I were to get a Cowboy Bebop tattoo, I do think it would be the cliche. I do think that's what it would say. But I already have a She-Ra tattoo that kind of carries the same message. I don't know how many times I can put the same idea on my body. You're not fatalist enough for that? <laughs> oh, I am. I just, uh, <laughs> I think it would be obnoxious to other people. <laughs> but Bang, Bang's another one. Um Fun story, Steve Bloom actually has the waveform of the vocal track Bang when he says it tattooed on his forearm. It's been such an impactful journey for him in both his career and life that he needed that tattoo on his body. I don't know if this is where as a viewer I was supposed to go, but I find that moment darkly comedic. If you if you're still paying close attention to that scene when he's on the stairs, you'll notice that he's surrounded by people. And these are all still NPCs. These are still goons who, if Spike, I think, managed to vest Vicious and came running out of there, would probably still attack him. And there's, there's a funniness to that. There's a silliness to it where Spike is like, don't worry about it, guys. I did, I'm not going to make it. You don't have to pull out your guns. Bang. I did the work for you. <laughs> And I agree with you. My previous watch throughs, I, I definitely thought like, okay, even if somehow Spike were to pull through on this and make his way out to the building, how is he going to get past these goons? But I also think there are legs here for the fanfic writers <clears throat> uh, that maybe some of these syndicate members are aligned with Shin. You know, we don't know how deep the coup ran, who actually wanted it, if Vicious was just pulling the strings because he could. Or if there were an entire kind of shift in thinking around these people. It could go either way, but obviously the story ends here, so there's no need to belabor it. But there's still a future after Spike dies. And I think that's the thing that most gets me about you're going to carry that weight. We're entrusted with a future. Jet and Faye have a future. And who knows what happens, like the Bebop is sold for scrap and he, Jet opens like, I don't know, a mechanic shop on Mars or... Faye hunts down everyone in the dragons to figure out what the hell happened to Spike. Or who knows, even Ed, like she can call from Earth. That's a thing. That's a technology they have today. The story doesn't end just because Spike is dead. The Bebop universe is so much bigger than that. 
And that is far more compelling to me than an argument about if Spike is dead or not. I could go either way, honestly. I think it's more impactful that's to say, yes, he he died. He took his final breaths on that stair. But I don't think that's the point of this ending. All my English majors out there know full well that this anime is packed with foreshadowing and heavy-handed metaphors that say this is where the story is going, up to and including Spike's body being bathed in heavenly light and doves flying over, just like they did when Julia died. Come on, guys. <laughs> Enjoy your fan fiction. I'm, I'm not going to be a jerk about it. No anime podcast would be complete without some really spicy hot takes. So here they are. We're bringing them to you. Some folks who wanted to start some controversy. Alias Wa, pronouns he, him. Hey, hey, Beat Beat Podcast. It's your old buddy Wa here. And I'm coming to you with a controversial opinion on Cowboy Bebop. And that is, I think the Japanese version is superior to the English dub. Don't get me wrong, I love that English dub. It's what I grew up on, and I've probably seen it way more than I've seen the Japanese. But upon my revisit to the show last year, I found a new appreciation for the original Japanese. Number one, it's just a who's who of top 90s uh, Japanese voice talent. And number two, it's just beautifully written. I mean, it's beautiful in English, but as someone who likes to think I know Japanese, it's beautifully written in Japanese too. To go into a bit more specifics, um, Spike sounds great. I love Yamadera Kuchi's performance. He imbues the character with a youthful cockiness um, that gives it a bit more nuance, um, whereas I feel the dub goes for a more straight-on, cool guy sort of image. Similar thing with Faye. While I think the English performance is kind of a straight-on, sort of sexy character, um, Hayashiwara Megumi's performance um, sort of highlights a lot of the insecurity that I feel is key to her character. And I feel like um, through the Japanese performances, I learned more about these two characters in my recent revisit to the show. But don't get me wrong, both versions are great, but um, I have a feeling lots of the Western fandom tends to ignore uh, the original Japanese version, so give it a shot. A big shot, if you will. As far as what happens after the Real Folk Blues, I'll tell you what happens. The Bebop crew all goes out to eat tacos. Yes, even Spike. See ya! Hey folks, my internet alias is Jamie. Uh, playing it a little fast and loose with the pronouns, you know, he, she, they, it's all good. Uh, so I was born in 97, which means I didn't get to watch Cowboy Bebop when it first hit Adult Swim. I did not discover the show until about four years ago when I was in college. Um... It came into my life at the exact right point when I needed that melancholy Spike Spiegel sad show vibe. I I latched onto it right away, and I've been a fan ever since. And, you know, as someone who's always felt sort of like 10 to 20% disconnected 
from the quote-unquote real world. My favorite Bebop character is Vincent. So, obviously, the stuff that he did to Faye wasn't cool, nor uh, was the whole bioterrorism thing. But just watching Vincent in uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door, it's always made me feel seen on a sort of existential level. And, you know, at the end of the film, when he completes his arc and sort of becomes grounded in the real world, it always helps me to sort of snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. I'm not sorry. <laughs> but no, for real, though. Vincent's pretty dope. So it's been a wild ride. We've heard so much great music this entire series. It just kept on coming. And then even after this concludes, we get even more amazing music. But this series ends with the song Blue. We hear its track in its entirety as we pan up from Spike's dead body towards the stars and we revisit asteroids and maybe some gates and and ships flying around and see his star fade from the sky. This song gets me every single time and it's up there for me when Gren is on his way to Titan and we hear Space Lion. It's the same impact. It's the same sorrow and bittersweet moment that really resonates. It's I don't know what else to say about this track aside that it's titled Blue, the color we keep getting when we're talking about sorrow for the show. Ah, man, Lauren, I got the feels again. I'm going to cry. <laughs> yeah, I I was crying at the end of this not only because it's exactly as you say, it's an incredible song and some of the themes in the song are like it's not necessarily always clear to us what life is about, what the meaning of it is, what are we doing here, what's it all for, but now I'm free. Uh, and that is harder and harder of a pill to swallow the older I get and the more I experience grief in my own life and the more tragedy I see. Spike's story being like, was Julia worth it? What happens now? The questions this anime leaves us with I mean, not to be too vague, but like that's life, you know, life is full of questions and then you frankly just die and not all of them get answered and not everyone gets a happy ending and the people who love you are going to miss you. But it happens when it happens and it just it just hits me in the in the face every time. But also blue is a theme throughout the anime. The color blue. Recall Ed painting Faye's nails and her saying, oh, Ed, anything but blue. This color is a through line through the story that I think comes up when our characters are experiencing longing and loss and are wrestling with, is this all a dream? Like the color, the color blue is is just that emotion. So what an ending. So good. Thumbs up. Love it. Crying. Happy. Let's watch it again. 30 more episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Join us next week as we begin episode one, Asteroid Blues. <laughs> we just, the podcast never ends. We just do this over and over until we die. There's actually, there's actually a podcast called Till Death Do Us Blart. 
And the idea behind it is they just watch Paul Blart Mall Cop over and over again, (laughs) just every year into infinity. So we wouldn't be the first. So that's it. That's our deep dive into the Real Folk Blues Part 2, but also the entirety of the anime that is Cowboy Bebop. We did it, Jamie! Yeah, we did it! Let's watch it again! (laughs) Thank you to everyone who has ever listened to this show, who has been a guest, or who's just discovering it now. Maybe it's the future and you just found us. Hello, we hope you had a great time. We will be back for season two of the Bebop Beat. We unboxed this a little bit already in our recent bonus episode about the Netflix opening sequence, but just once more, we'll be on hiatus for a few weeks until the Netflix show premieres. We will record for you at least one binge episode right when it comes out with our friends over at the Cowboy Bebop subreddit. And then a couple of weeks after that, we'll come back just like we are now, doing one episode of the Netflix show at a time. Until then, what can you do? Well, please tell your friends about the Bebop Beat. We would love to have more listeners following us along on the Netflix journey. Uh, You could also check us out on Twitter at Bebop Beat. And I think we're just generally going to kick it there for a while, right? Just hanging out until everything restarts. Yep, I will be resharing some of our favorite episodes. If you just started with us, maybe at the Brain Scratch episode, you can go back and we'll show you Wendy Lee again or Steve Conti again, or just that one about corgis that was cute. I'll also just be doing that thing I do on social media where I search for the words Cowboy Bebop podcast and talk to strangers. So we'll see you there. Until then, that wraps season one. Thanks for joining us. We are so honored that you hung out with us all through the best anime of all time. We will see you, Space Cow folks. Thank you for listening to the Bebop Beat. If you like our show, please rate us on Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Bebop Beat. Our email address is bebopbeatpodcast at gmail.com. The Bebop Beat is hosted and produced by Jamie Sanchez and Lauren Fates. Our editor and associate producer is Angela Geis. Our logo and art assets are by Kat Janda. That's a wrap? I think so. I think we did it. Angela, we did it. Oh, dang. (laughs) It's a season.